Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for this church family, for the ways in which you've knit our hearts together and our lives together, for the ways you've shaped us through one another, the interactions, the, 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 uh, the friendships, uh, the mentorships. We give you thanks for all of that. We give you thanks for lives changed, for years and years and years of lives changed. We thank you for this church. God, I pray in this moment, um, Lord, that you continue to change us and you continue to work on our hearts and, and that you soften us this morning and that you prepare us to hear a word from you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, uh, we're still in the book of Galatians, and we're in chapter 2. And um, <clears throat> to get started uh, on this chapter, uh, or on this, this last half of the chapter, I, I will warn you, we're not going to actually finish chapter 2 today, even though we read all the way through it. Um, what happens is starting um, in verse 15 to the end of it all, uh, it begins to, I mean, it begins to get, like, dense. You know what I mean by this? Like, every word starts to count. You know, it's not just, like, uh, you know, like a fluffy story or something. It's, like, every, Paul is using every single word uh, with precision. And so there's just really no way to capture all of that this morning. I want to do two things. I want to start with um, this... Uh, this dispute that we start that, that we read, which is between Paul and Peter, that begins all of this in verse eleven, and then uh, I want to use that as kind of a just a way to refresh ourselves as to what happened in the first couple chapters, uh, and then move in uh, to the next part uh, and really address uh, three key ideas uh, that are sitting in verses fifteen and following. But let's go ahead, uh, open up with me, Galatians chapter 2. You're going to want to have your Bibles in front of you. Uh, as always, uh, the black Bible that sits in the pew, uh, that's one you can use. If you need it, you can even keep it. Uh, and it's uh, the ESV, which happens to be what I'm reading from as well. So it should match perfectly. All right. Starting verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Uh, Paul is in a shooting match, if you recall. He is, he's out for blood, right? And uh, he's not mad at Peter in this, well, he is maybe in this story, but recall that he's telling a story. He, he's actually talking to the Galatians. He's mostly worried about the Galatians in writing this letter, and he's worried about them because they've taken the gospel and the freedom of the gospel and they've traded it for something else. He's using this story with Peter as an example of somebody who did it wrong and who needed to be corrected. Now, he's chosen this purposefully, no doubt. Like, he chose somebody who has some name recognition, right? Everybody in that church would have known who Peter is. And Paul, by saying, yeah, I stood up to the main man, is saying, I'm on equal footing with Peter, right? 
uh, and he's saying uh, that I have just as much credibility, and, uh, and what you'll learn is that Peter realized that my gospel was, was correct. Now, what you need to know is this word here, it says uh, that uh, he, he opposes Peter to his face because he stood condemned. The word condemned feels heavy. Uh, it's a bit harsh, maybe. And the idea that sits behind it is, is actually like a self-condemnation. It's a self, um, like within his own self, Peter recognizes that what he's doing and what he actually believes are two separate things, right? And he's going to go on, Paul's going to go on to bring in the idea of hypocrisy. This is what hypocrisy is. It's when, one, when someone says one thing and then they, they do another thing. And this is what Peter's doing here. And so it's worth is Peter preaching the false gospel? I would suggest no. He's probably not. He's preaching the right thing. Is he doing the right gospel? At least in this case, he didn't. And let's see what happens here. For before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. And you should know, if you don't, eating with the Gen- a Jew eating with a Gentile is just not something that's going to happen. It makes them unclean because Gentiles, by their nature, are unclean to the Jewish people. And so eating with them makes a, a Jew unclean. But Peter's living in freedom. Peter's living not in that Old Testament time. He's living in this New Testament time. And so these kosher laws no longer uh, uh, matter uh, in the same way that they did before. And so he needs to set this aside. And he had, apparently, until, until some peer pressure comes in, right? And as it says here, certain men... They came from James, you know, the, the chief guy in, in Jerusalem, and he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, well, he drew back, and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, right? And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy, so apparently, even Barnabas, who, by the way, if you were here last week, showed up in the story last week. Do you remember what Barnabas was doing? He was on Team Paul, <laughs> right? Paul took Barnabas and, uh, and Titus, right? And they all went down to Jerusalem and they said, here's what we're preaching. And everybody in Jerusalem said, great, keep preaching that, right? And what are they preaching? They're preaching that Gentiles no longer have to keep the law. The, the, the strictures of the law, things like circumcision and, and, and Sabbath and, and, uh, and uh, food laws, and uh, they, they don't have to do these things in order to be, quote, Christian, right? And the Jews in Jerusalem, in the passage that we read before, said, continue on. That sounds great. And then Paul gives this story, where Peter believes this, and Barnabas believes this, but because of peer pressure, they, they kind of shrink away, right? And they go back into their former way of living life, a life that is not under freedom. 
There's a lot, I mean, this alone would be a, a wonderful sermon that I probably could and should preach, a, a sermon about hypocrisy. <laughs> and what does hypocrisy look like? You and I see it on a pretty regular basis. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And here we get to the heart of the matter. It's clear that Peter was living like a Gentile, right? Meaning he wasn't keeping all of those laws that he used to keep. And he was living like a Gentile until the peer pressure comes in and then he shrinks back and he goes back to his old way. Now it's worth asking, what do you think happens in Antioch to that Gentile population when they see the leader of this Christian movement begin to pull away and separate from them? and distance themselves, and say, yeah, we're like you, but not quite like you. It creates the opportunity for disunity, right? It creates the opportunity for the, for the Gentile folks to, to feel lesser than, to, to say to themselves, well, apparently we aren't quite as good in some way as Peter over there, who feels the need now to, to separate from us. And Paul comes into this situation, and he just lays down the truth. And he says, no, right? No, that's not how this works anymore. Peter, what are you doing? That is not how we do business now. And then he goes on to say, and this is where it starts to get dense, okay? He begins to lay out very clearly in the passage that follows exactly what that gospel looks like and exactly what, again, time we are in. We are not in, as I said last week, the Exodus 19 time, the, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant time. We are in this New Covenant time. What does that mean? He goes on, and this is where I want to spend our time together. So he says in verse 15, he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I just simply want to deal with that verse right there, 16. It's chock full of a lot of stuff. There's three ideas in it, three ideas in it that I want to talk about today. There's one big word, justified, okay, that's one thing. And then there's two phrases, works of the law, and what uh, in the ESV, uh, and probably most of your translations, unless you have the King James, God bless the King James in this, in this case, uh, uh, which says, faith in Jesus Christ, okay? The question on the table is this, how 
is humanity justified? We'll come back to what that word means in a second. And Paul offers just two options. He's like, there's two, two options on the table. One is works of the law. And here, you should think Exodus 19, right? Old Testament. The law, keeping the 613 laws that are handed down by Moses. This is what he's saying. Is that how we are justified? Again, we'll come back to what the word even means in a second here. And Paul clearly says what? What's the answer to that? No. No, that's not how we're justified. And he even says, no one can be justified that way. That's just not how the law works. It's not what it was intended to do. And so what's the other option then? Uh, it says in my translation, and most of yours as well, that the other option is faith in Jesus Christ, which I don't want to get too technical because um, I, I'm afraid I'm going to lose you. <laughs> but this is like a hotly debated phrase. Like if there's one phrase that I can think of in all of scripture that is like the most hotly debated, it's this one right here. Faith in Jesus. Like specifically this city, and it shows up uh, twice in this passage, and it shows up in a number of times in Romans and Ephesians. And the debate goes like this, and I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and weigh in at this point. If you have, by the way, I meant to bring it up here. Uh, I have the, the little um, Bible notes that I, that I created, and, and they're sitting out in the narthex. Uh, it, it has a little bit on, in there on this. Um, the phrase, as I like to translate it, as I think most scholars and, and uh, many pastors are kind of moving back toward, is actually what the, the King James started with. And it's the most literal of the translations, uh, which is uh, the faith of Jesus Christ. The faith of Jesus Christ. In fact, to say faith in Jesus Christ requires not just translation, but interpretation. It kind of sneaking in, not sneak, that's, that's too harsh, but, but, but putting in some kind of interpretation. The face of it simply says the faith of Jesus Christ. And here's what I would present to you as what Paul is doing. He's saying you've got two options before you as to how justification works. The one, as I've already said, is works of the law. This Exodus 19 sort of living. And he's saying that one doesn't work. The other option is the faith of Jesus Christ. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Christ's willingness to die and his resurrection. That... That pivotal moment, his faithfulness, that is how justification happens, right? And so this phrase, again, it appears a couple times, gets the, the, that is what is at stake in my mind in this book, throughout it. Paul's putting up two options, and he's saying, this one's the right one. Faith, Jesus Christ's faith, his willingness to die and his resurrection, right? Because it then goes on, and at that point, well, maybe just to back up one, one step, and then I promise we'll keep going here. Uh, what this does, by framing it this way, the translation as it sits here, and, and as it's often taught, 
makes it like it's about you and me. And Paul's primary way of framing all of this is it's not about you and me. He, he doesn't sit us at the center of the gospel. He sits Jesus at the center of the gospel, right? It's Jesus' faithfulness. It's Jesus' action. That's what's at the center of the gospel. And then, and then, once that's at the center, you'll notice we get entered into it. And it's worth asking, well, how do we get into it? Also through faith, right? Which is why it feels a little bit like I'm, I'm, I'm slicing, you know, this a little too thin. Uh, but as it says here, it says, Yet we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through Christ's faithfulness. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be made justified or to be justified by Christ's faithfulness. There it is again. It's the same phrase. And not by works of the law. I can feel there's lots of thoughts happening in the room right now. Does this matter? Does this even not matter? I don't know. I'll let you decide whether this matters or not. But the thing I like about it is that this makes Jesus the center of Jesus' gospel, right? Jesus' faithfulness is what is at, is at stake. His, his work on the cross is what is at stake, which is what Paul's going to go on to talk about here. And then the question becomes, well, how do you and I enter into this, right? How do we get into the, 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 the righteousness or the justification business and we get into it through faith in Jesus Christ, believing in Jesus, right? That is how we get into it. All right, this word justification. Often, uh, this is um, understood purely as like a, a legal term. The, the lawyers in the room uh, might perk up uh, at the idea of justification or uh, you know, someone becoming uh, justified uh, in their actions or, you know. I do think this actually has a legal connotation. But where I want to take us, actually, is that Paul utilizes a variety of metaphors to understand a few things. But namely, what happens on the cross? That's the primary question. What happens on the cross and its effect on us. And then prior to that, what is our current or before coming into Christ, what is the relationship between humanity and God? These are the two things. To get there, just turn a few pages to Ephesians. Just for me, it's just three pages, right? It's the next book, chapter two. And I want to walk through the variety of ways that Paul talks about this. Because in my mind, he uses at least seven different metaphors. Seven different metaphors for what happens when we come into Christ. So if you will, let's take a look starting in verse 11 and see the different ways that Paul talks about this. 
Ephesians chapter 2, 11 begins, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, uh, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's already using metaphors, right? We're separated, we're alienated, we're strangers. That's actually not, none of those are one of my seven, believe it or not. And he goes on. But now in Christ Jesus, key phrase, now in Christ Jesus, you who were, and here's the spatial metaphor, you were once far away, right? You were once far off. Well, now you have been brought near. And how? By the blood of Christ, right? So if we're asking the question, what does the cross do? Like, what's the effect of the Why does Jesus die at all? Which is a reasonable question to ask. And Paul answers it very clearly here using a spatial metaphor. You were once far off, and through the blood, through the cross, you're brought near. You're brought near to who? You're brought near to God, right? He goes on. In verse 13... No, that was 13. 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And here is metaphor number two. It's a war metaphor. Hostility. There are hostilities that exist between us and God, Certainly back then, between Jews and Gentiles. And what happens? Well, through Jesus' death, the dividing wall of hostility gets pulled down, right, in his flesh. Metaphor number two is that the war that exists between humanity and God is called to a ceasefire. And God is saying, I'm not fighting back. Why are you fighting against me? And he sends his son to call the ceasefire, to create peace, and to make possible a truce between humanity and God. But Paul's not done yet. He keeps going. He says that this is done by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And if that doesn't sound like Galatians 1 or 2 to you, then you just haven't been paying attention to what I've been saying for six weeks now. I mean, this is what Paul is getting at. Abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Right? That's, we're in a new time. We're in this New Testament time. But some of you astute readers and, and thinkers and, and, and those of you who know your Bible really well, you might be asking a great question right now. And that is, at some point Jesus says what? I did not come to abolish the law. Right? But, but here we have Paul saying something different, it seems. And this requires wisdom, I will confess. In fact, much Bible reading, especially good Bible reading, requires wisdom. It requires taking things that might not quite seem to add up 
and asking some tough questions and pulling them all together and saying to yourself, what's really happening here? Paul seems pretty adamant, uh, not just in Ephesians 2 here, but through all of Galatians, through most of Romans, and in a number of other places in his other letters, that the law itself has been, as he says here, abolished. And yet, we have this other passage from Jesus. So what do we do? Well, let's take a look at that other passage from Jesus. Just keep your finger here for a second. And uh, if you look, it's in Matthew chapter 5. It's, it's right there with the Beatitudes and, and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the ways he uh, begins all of this, really. He starts talking about various laws, in fact. And uh, it's in verse 17, Matthew 5, 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but what? To fulfill them. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And it's worth asking, what in the world does it mean to fulfill the law? And what does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the law? I think Paul is getting at this in a variety of ways. Jesus, as Paul will say later, Uh, in uh, Galatians chapter 6, has a law of his own. The law of Christ is what he calls it, right? And in it, Paul really simplifies things down. He he does what Jesus does, and he says, love the Lord your God and and love your neighbor. And, And then Paul adds to that, and be filled with the Spirit, and do spirit things, right? And that for Paul, it seems, and there's more, no doubt, That seems to be the fulfillment of the law. And Jesus goes on, though. He says in 18, For truly I say, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not the smallest part, is going to pass away from the law until it is accomplished. And there again, it's it's worth asking, until what's accomplished, right? And I would argue that what is accomplished is the cross. The very thing that moves us from the old covenant time to the new covenant time. And Paul would argue this way too. And it seems Jesus himself was setting up the opportunity for all of us to read this way as well. We're not done yet though. We've still got metaphors to go. So if we come back to Ephesians chapter 2 and we keep reading, we find this. In verse 15, he does this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, in Christ, a phrase that he uses, Paul uses a thousand times, in himself, one new man in place of two. And so making peace, peace between Jews and Gentiles, namely, but peace in a larger sense as well. And might reconcile. And here's the uh, metaphor number three, reconcile. It's a, it's a relational metaphor, right? When two people are at odds with one another, and then you might have a mediator come in, and they find reconciliation again, right? And this is what Paul uses between us and God. We needed reconciliation. 
And so he might reconcile us both to God in one body, Christ's body, hanging on the cross, right? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, comes back to the war metaphor, and came and preached peace to you who were far off, comes back to that spatial metaphor, peace to you who were near, for through him we both have access, metaphor number four for you. We have access now. Again, through Christ's death, through the faith of Christ, as I would argue, we have access. What does access mean? Access is like the guy standing at the door waiting for your ticket. And he's not going to let you in that door until you give him that ticket. You need access to whatever's in that room behind that guy. And Jesus offers us access. He gives us through, again, his faithfulness on the cross, access to God. In one spirit to the Father. But Paul's not done yet. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. And here he moves to an immigration metaphor, right? Or a, uh, if not immigration, some kind of like um, citizenship metaphor. And he says, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're, you're not foreigners living in a foreign land. Now you are fellow citizens. You've got your green card, Right? And your fellow citizens with the saints and the members of, metaphor number six, the family or the household of God, right? You have been brought in and you get to sit at this table with God and all the saints, right? One more yet. (laughs) Verse 20 built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into, and here's the final one, we all together create this holy temple, a holy temple, a dwelling place for God, as he says. Now, all these metaphors, they're significant, for any number of reasons, right? And I could park and probably do a sermon series on every single one. And um, I'm, I'm just not going to do that uh, anytime soon here. But all of this has to do with justification, okay? If we can come back to what's happening in that Galatians passage. Because I think what Paul is doing is Paul is trying to pull in any number of ways to express an answer to the question, what happened on Good Friday? What happened on that cross? And he's saying, well, you were far off, right? That's the old you. But through that cross, now you're brought in. Or before the cross, you were at war with God. But now, peace. Or before the cross, you were out of relationship. It was broken, and now you've been reconciled. Before the cross, you didn't have an admission ticket into the throne room of God, but now through the cross, you do. Before you were aliens, before you were foreigners, you had no rights in this land, but now you are citizens, and you belong here. 
And this is your place too. Before, you were not of the family of God. You were not of the household of God. Before, you were outside the house. But now, you are welcomed in and you are sitting at this table. And before, you were not a holy people. But now, through Christ, you are a holy people. All of these things, these are all the various ways that Paul is answering this question. What happened that Good Friday? And what Paul is saying in Galatians 2, he's saying works of the law are not going to get you any of those seven things. Works of the law is not going to get you there. It's simply not possible. But the gift of Jesus Christ... The grace that it is, it's the only way. This is what he wants to say. To conclude all of this, I hesitate to even ask the question, but so what is a question still worth asking? What does this mean, right? And I think some of us in here might be like, well, yeah, all of this is just Christianity 101. Like we've been taught these things our whole lives. Some of you, I hope, this is, this is new material and you're thinking, wow, I've never heard it quite that way before. To either of you. The so what question brings us back to where Peter found himself. You see, Peter found himself saying, I know, I preach that Jesus alone is enough. And then when push came to shove, and he was pressured in the wrong way, he shrunk back, and he didn't live a life that was according to the gospel he himself knew. And I guess I would just pitch it back to you, especially those of you who know everything I've said today. And you say, yes, Eric, we've, we've heard all this before, it's just in different fashion. And the question I would pitch back to you is, where are you acting like a Peter who hasn't fully embraced the fact that you have been brought near not of your own accord or by something that you've done, but by the grace of Christ himself? And then some of you might be hearing this for the first time and thinking, that sounds like a pretty good deal. That's what I want. I want to be brought in. I want a home. I want a place where I'm a citizen. I want to be holy. I want to be made right again. And to you, I would say, the door is wide open. Christ is calling you in. And he's saying, yes, please come. And then it's possible that there's somebody in the room who is still saying, I don't know that I even need that. I'm doing just fine. I'm doing just fine. Um, I would make a pitch to you if, if that's you right now. And I would say it this way. Life has a way... <laughs> especially those of you in the back row, you know this well, right? You can only live so long 
before the wounds start hitting. And before you start needing God in some fashion. And before the cry for help becomes real and is felt. And you realize in that moment, I just can't do it anymore. I need somebody to come in from the outside and to pull me out of this mess. The old phrase, there aren't atheists in a foxhole, is because the atheist who finds himself under fire finally says, I'm willing to send up a prayer, right, because I need something. I need help in this situation. And my guess is that if that's not you right now, it's actually not a guess. I'm certain of it. At some point, it will be you. At some point. That's just how life works. None of us make it out of here alive. <laughs> That's the bad news, right? None of us make it out of here unwounded. The good news is this, that in your mortality and in your woundedness, this is where Christ is often most at work. This is what Peter reveals to us, right? Or Paul does, anyway, uh, In 2 Corinthians 12, one of my favorite passages, Paul's got this thorn in the flesh. He's got this wound, and it just, he just wants it gone. And he prays. And what does Jesus say? He hears a voice, and the voice says, No, no, that's yours. (laughs) And guess what? My power, Jesus' power, is made perfect in your woundedness. That's a, that's a lot to carry. That's a, a tough thing to hear. But I think some of us who have been down the road far enough and have both received those wounds and ministered out of those wounds have learned that's a pretty healthy place to be, actually. Because we learn, just like those gloves up here, right? It's not us doing the work. The gloves aren't doing the work. It's Christ in us. It's Christ in us. So my hope is, if you are that person right now who's saying, I don't need this stuff, that you take the time to just sit and reflect And to ask yourself, when have I needed this? When will I need this? And is God moving in the here and the now? Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray that you do a work in our hearts. God, your work on the cross it draws us near. It brings us in. It makes us citizens. It makes us right with you. And God, for that we give you thanks. That is the only way it's possible. God, I pray that it reminds us of just who we are. We are a people who have been given a gift, a gift of new life, a life that is not our own, 
but a life that is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit through Christ's death and resurrection, that we might be instruments of you, that we might be your gloves, that we might be your shoes, that we might be uh, your hat, that we might be your tools in the world, that we go out and we do your bidding. God, tune our hearts to yours. May we follow the Holy Spirit into what you have us do today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.